with an intro like that, I feel like everyone should have already been bouncing in their seat. That's, that song just gets me going every time. You know, in the pre-service prayer this morning, I'm just going to tell you how my morning's been going a little bit today. Uh, we were talking about how like some people plan, you know, way in advance their wedding, right? Like a year in advance. It's like, we're going to make bookings and all this. And I was telling uh, the pre-service prayer team about, you know, this, I thought I said wedding was being planned like a year in advance, but I actually said funeral. I didn't even know it. So I was just talking about this funeral. Someone's planning their funeral a year in advance and booking things. And they're kind of like looking at me like, what's going on? So if, you know, this morning you're like, what's going on in his head today? That's kind of where I'm at, okay? So we're going we're gonna to dive in. Hey, we've been in a series on 1 Peter, uh, uh, written by Peter, an apostle, one of the uh, 12 original uh, disciples of Jesus, which is a disciple is a follower of Jesus. And uh, we've subtitled the series Steadfast. And the reason we did this is because Peter actually gives us the reason for writing the letter, which hopefully you know already if you've been following in this series but if you don't, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, where Peter says, I testify that I've written about the true grace of God. And then he says this, stand fast in it. Remain steadfast in it. If you've ever wondered, what is the true grace of God? What does it mean? And, and Peter says, here is a picture, a kind of summary, a taste of what the true grace of of God actually is. And then he calls us not only to receive it, but to stay steadfast, to stand fast in it. And he's already described with the true grace of God. If you remember, he started the entire letter out by saying, this is the true grace of God. It's when Jesus sent, or, or Jesus came, God sent his son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and is because of the mercy of God that we now have hope and it's not a dead hope, it's a living hope because Jesus is not dead, but he is at the right hand of the Father, he's alive, right? And so we have this new hope and he says, now because of that, God is building you up into this new household. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You're God's people when you receive this grace. It's unbelievable. But it's not just something we receive, it's something that enters us and then it starts to work its way through us and it changes us. That's what it means to stand fast in the grace. It's not just to keep, uh, we need grace when we fail, but also we need grace to live into the people of God, the character of God that he wants us to live into. And Peter talks about this. If you remember, he talks about specifically how we relate to authority changes Right? You might remember the two words that Peter puts together, submit and authority, whether that's governing authorities, whether that's your employer. Peter used the word slave. But this idea, this, this newfound life, this new grace in us causes us to put ourselves under authority. And then last week, if you're out at the camp out, you know that Peter kind of switched gears and he talked about the area of marriage and how we live as God's people as a husband and how we live as God's people as a wife. And marriage. Well, Peter now switches gears and he just talks to kind of the, the church, those who have put their faith, who've received this grace. He talks to them, generally speaking, regarding the two uh, uh, general relationships we all have. We have relationships with those that I'll call insiders, the people that are in the church, and we have a relationship with those who are outside the church or outside the faith. They have not yet put their faith in Jesus. And Peter talks about these two ideas. What does it look like to live 
inside the church or inside the community of believers and to relate to those outside the community of believers. Now, as it relates to the church, most of us, when we think about the church, we think about something like this, right? That's a church. Or maybe when you think about church, you think about something like this. Oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? Or maybe you think about something like this. But actually, the church actually looks a little bit more like this, that guy. Or like this, because the church is actually people. And we gotta get our heads around this that we, we do not go to church in the sense uh, a physical address to a building. When Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church, he wasn't saying, I'm gonna build four walls and a building. He was saying, I'm gonna build my ecclesia. I'm gonna build my, my congregation of people. The church is people, which means we are the church right now in the gathering. And, and the idea of ecclesia is this, this idea of this congregation, this, this gathering of people. But if the church is a people, we're not only the church when we gather, we're also the church when we scatter. That we don't cease to be the church when we go to our homes and our families and our jobs and our workplaces, we continue to be God's chosen people. We continue to be this holy nation that God is building up. We continue to be the church. Now, I imagine that there's some church people that you know that you're not all that proud to associate with, right? I mean, maybe they, they, they uh, verbally kind of say, yeah, I'm a Christian and they got their bumper sticker of like Jesus or the fish or, you know, they've got their, their chain around their neck. But by the way they live their lives, you're like, I don't know if I want to be associated with that. So what would it look like for us to be the church gathered and scattered in the way that we relate to one another and the way we relate to those outside the church that would be enticing, that would be attractive, that would cause people to be curious and say, I wanna know more about that. How would we live? How would we live if God our Father would look down and say, I'm so glad that you and I associate with each other. I'm proud of you, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, as Peter continues and he talks about these two relationships, he gives us a compelling, I think a compelling vision to live into that I think when the world sees this, as we live into this, as we stand fast in the true grace of God and get formed into the image of Christ, it pulls people in to say, I want that. So here's what Peter writes. If you have your Bibles, it's verse eight of chapter three. He says, finally, so remember he's just talked about husbands and wives and this authority thing. Now he says, finally, all of you, I'm just writing to all of you who are in the church, who are part of the believers, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So he has all these like, these commands, these imperatives, right? Now, <clears throat> most likely Peter is talking to church people about church people. This is how you relate in the gathering. This is how you relate to other insiders. This is how you relate. He's calling us how to relate to those who are already followers of Jesus. And if I could summarize this list of, you know, five different things that he mentions, it would be this one word, unity. I want you to live 
in unity. If there's one thing that could define the church as they relate to one another, I want it to be unity. And here's the thing about unity. Unity is a special, special thing. And it's special for two, at least two reasons that are very, very significant. One is when you live with unity with those who are in the body, it just makes your life better. And you know this, right? And, and Peter would have known about the Psalm, psalmist. In Psalm 133, the psalmist writes about how unity, it just makes your life better. He says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And undoubtedly, when you live in your family unit, in your extended family unit, when you live in the church, when things are unified, it's like life is just smoother. You sleep better at night, right? Like life is better when we're together and we're unified together. This is one of the benefits of unity. And Peter talks about that. But here's the other benefit. And it's, it's something that completely different. It's something Jesus talked about the night he was betrayed. And it has to do with unity. As he was looking over the generations of those who would come to follow him, Jesus prayed a prayer for every person who would come to be his. He prayed a prayer for you and for me. And this is the prayer he prayed. And it has to do with unity. In John 17, he says this. Jesus prayed for us that all of them, that's us, may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's a whole lot of oneness, right? May they, that's the body of believers, those who put their faith in me, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that our oneness would be rooted in him and when we would be united in him and with one another, at this point, the world will look at the church and say, huh, maybe Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus's point was that our greatest apologetic as the church within the church is our unity to one another. Notice Jesus did not pray that we'd accomplish the mission he would give us. He doesn't say, Father, I pray that you give them strength and passion and energy to win the world for my name. No, because he knew if we didn't do this, we'd never, we'd never accomplish that. And so he prays for unity. See, unity is both for our good and also the good of our witness. And when we talk about unity, you know all this. That's, that's compelling. That's like, why wouldn't we do this? Why is there so much such a lack of unity within the church. And I'll give you one, one reason. I think it's the biggest reason. It's because unity is expensive and more of you are Mennonite than you care to admit. It costs, it's painful. See, unity in theory is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Whether it's unity in marriage, in your family, in the church, unity is just this, this beautiful, theoretically wonderful thing. But in reality, in practicality, Unity is just painful, it costs, and sometimes it's just hard. It's so hard. It's difficult. In fact, when Peter writes his list of five things, notice that all of these five things are gonna cost you and I something. Because a unity always costs us, and what it always costs us is us. It's putting ourselves aside. Let's read that list again through this lens, this unity lens and the challenge that unity is. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded. Do you know what 
when more than one person are like-minded, it means that each of them put some of their single-mindedness aside. That cost them something, didn't it? Be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Sympathy has to do with caring for the needs and feelings of others and letting that affect you. That's other-centric, not self-centric. Love one another, not yourself, right? This is about, be about others. Be compassionate, care, have care and concern for others and be humble. The word humble does not mean to think less of yourself. It means to think about yourself less because you're thinking about others more. See, all of this is gonna cost you, you. And this is what he calls us to, both for our good, but also the good of our witness to the world. Now we could end the message here and we could talk about, okay, so how are you doing in your relationships with others in the church, right? Who do you need to forgive? Because unity is hard. Who is it that you need to bear with right now? Who is it that you're struggling with right now as the gathering? And it's like, I don't know if I wanna be in church. I don't know if I wanna be associated with those people because of, well, them. And Peter would be challenging you now. What would it look like to live in unity for your good? but also for the good of your witness. But he doesn't end here. Peter continues. And then he expands the conversation and says, how do we live even with those relationships outside the church in a very challenging sphere, sphere of injustice? Here's what he says. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult to, all, to which we all say, yeah, but Peter, that's how the world works, Right? You slight me, I slight you back. You hit, I hit. You repay with what's been given to you. He says, ah, not in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's upside down. On the contrary, because it's upside down, repay evil with blessing. And then he tells us, here's why. Because you were called to do this. (laughs) Really? Why would I wanna do it? So that you may inherit a blessing. Repay evil with good, slight with good words, slander with encouragement, repay evil with good because you were called to this and by this you will begin to inherit a blessing. It's for your good. Now we would read this and we'd think, surely Peter's talking about heaven. The blessing he's talking about is just slug through life, just keep giving people goodness when they give you evil, but eventually when you die, you'll go to heaven and you'll get some blessing, right? It's actually not what Peter says. Peter goes on to quote Psalm 34, verse 12 to uh, 16, I think it's, or 14. He quotes the Psalm, and when, when, when the Psalmist wrote this, he wasn't writing about paradise. He wasn't writing about heaven. He was writing about right here, right now, in this life. And the blessing Peter says is coming actually starts now. Here's the quote from Psalm 34. For whoever would love life, you wanna love life? I wanna love life. Whoever would love life and see good days, who wants to see good days? I wanna see some good days. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil. So don't repay evil with evil, Peter says. You wanna love life? You wanna see some good days? You must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. 
They must, those who want to see good days, must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it the way Jesus said it in in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes was, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be children of God. You want to see good days? Turn from evil. Do good. Yeah, but what if they did evil? Yeah, yeah, turn from evil and do good because it's reflective of you, not of how they treated you. And he goes on for, this is quoting the psalmist, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Not their prayer when they get to heaven one day. This is about now. God listens and his ear is attentive. So you wanna see some good days and turn from evil. And he goes on, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil that there is a blessing that we begin to inherit in the here and now. In essence, Peter says this, when you do it God's way, it's just better for you. Your life will be better when you do it his way. Life is better when you follow Jesus because you start to do life better. You start repaying evil with good and it is better for you. Now, does this mean that there will never be hardship in life? And Peter's like, oh, come on. No, it may make your life better, but it does not mean there won't be hardship. And here's where he starts talking about injustice. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good, right? I mean, most people you do good, they're like, oh, that's good. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're still blessed. Even if you should suffer, he's talking about injustice, suffering at the hand of someone for which you do not deserve. You have not earned that kind of punishment. Even if you should, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. And the reason he says this is because when you and I face injustice, we are tempted to fear. We're tempted to say, oh my Is there any justice in the world? Who's the power at be now? And we're tempted to be given to fear. So he says, actually, instead of fearing, do this. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Injustice has a way of making us think, who's actually in control? And in those moments when we wonder, is there a God on the throne? Peter says the antidote to fear in the face of injustice, when you get something you don't deserve and you say, God, where are you? It's to say, I revere, I reverence. Christ is still Lord. Christ is still Lord. In fact, seven verses After uh, Peter says this, he quotes this regarding Jesus. He says, Jesus is the one who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him, which Peter is saying, every power, every authority is not only inferior to Jesus, but every power and authority is subject to Jesus. Meaning Jesus is Lord. And when you face injustice, Jesus has not stepped off the throne. And you wonder who's in control here? Jesus has not stepped off the throne. That injustice is still under the power of Jesus, which brings up a whole lot of other questions, right? (laughs) Then why are you allowing this, Jesus? And we don't have time to get into all of that other than to say one day Jesus will come back and he will right every wrong. 
But right now he was not bringing that justice in every situation. But Peter says, hey, 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 remember who's on the throne. As you face injustice and you relate to those outside the faith who are coming against you, revere Christ as Lord. And when you start to live this way, he starts to sum this all up. When you start to live this way, loving those inside the church and everyone outside just says, how do they get along? And then you start living with this kindness and love to those outside the church, especially in the face of injustice. People are gonna start looking at you and saying, that's different. I wanna know about that, which is why Peter says this next. Always, and he says this in the context of injustice, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. When you live this kind of way, people outside are gonna say, what kind of hope do you have? Where does that come from? Give me the reason, the word reason is, it's the Greek word that we get the word apologetics from. Apologetics is kind of the logical understanding of why you believe what you believe. Always. Have uh, be prepared to give an answer for the apologetic, the reason. This is why I believe what I believe. And he says, but do this. As you do this, do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with gentleness and respect. See, Peter's point is this. I think for far too long and far too often, Christians have let their mouth take the lead. And Peter actually says, don't let your mouth take the lead. And we, we, try to, we try to talk people into the kingdom. Just gotta, I gotta know the words to say and I just gotta give those who don't know the word of God yet or the gospel, I just gotta give them the right words and then they'll come to follow Jesus. And Peter says, ah, you have it backwards. Your mouth doesn't take the lead, your walk takes the lead. And as you live in a changed character, as a changed person, it's gonna be so upside down to the world that the world's gonna start asking you. And you don't have to start with your mouth. You start with your walk. And then when they ask, you simply just give them the reason for the hope that you have. I think too many Christians wonder, I don't know if I have the right words. Here's the deal. If you already have the right walk, God will give you the words in the moment. People will already be interested and you won't have to say it perfectly. Most of us know Jesus died for my sins. He is the hope that I have. It's not rocket science, but living in godliness, stand fast in the true grace of God, that's hard. He says, do this with gentleness and respect. I think the other reason he says, do this with gentleness and respect is because I think for a lot of us, because we know the apologetic, we know why we believe what we believe, it just makes such logical sense that we just start to argue with people outside the faith. I think Peter's point is very few, very few people come to know Jesus because they were argued into the kingdom. So don't spend your time arguing. You're probably not gonna win them. But as you give the reason for the hope that you have, as you declare your apologetic, here's why I believe, and they wonder about your life, do it with gentleness and respect their worldview. Even though you know that's a wrong worldview, respect where they come from and be gentle with them. Win them into the kingdom, be winsome. See, when, when we live right, we gain the right to speak about the light. 
but it starts with how we live. When we live right, we gain the right and they start asking. We can speak about the light. So do this with gentleness, respect, and then he uh, wraps this up, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ, in Christ, this is godly behavior, may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It is better if you're gonna suffer to suffer injustice because you did the right thing. That's his point. For Christ, and this is so interesting, I love this. Have you noticed in the book of Peter, he always comes back to Jesus? It's like, hey, if you're gonna suffer, it's because Jesus suffered. Hey, if you're, it's because of Jesus, it's because of Jesus. He does the exact same thing. For Christ, and remember, this is in the context of injustice. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Meaning this, Jesus endured injustice. He did nothing wrong, and yet he took your sin upon himself and he suffered your consequence of sin. He took it on himself. And why did he do this? To bring you to God. Meaning this, as a follower of Jesus, you and I may experience injustice. And when we experience injustice, we're to repay evil with good, not only because it is better for us, but it is also better for our witness. And just as Jesus suffered once for sins, even though it was injustice to him, he did nothing wrong. He did it to bring us to God. And as we suffer injustice and live the contrary life, the upside down life, blessing those who curse us, the world will start to say, why do you have the hope that you have? And we'll be able to give them the reason. And it may be through our suffering, just as it was through Jesus's suffering, that they, are brought to God. Isn't that amazing? See, none of the imperatives in the New Testament are asked of us without our king first doing it himself. And if Jesus is gonna ask us to suffer injustice well, injustice well, it's because he's already done it as our example. To summarize this all up, godly living with insiders and outsiders is for our good and for the good of our witness. Godly living with insiders, it's just better for you. Living in unity is just better for you. Your life will be better if you can figure this out within, within the church. Living with outsiders is just, uh, is, uh, sorry, godly living with outsiders is just better for you. Remember Psalm 34, Peter quotes it. Life will just be better for you in the here and now if you follow God. But also godly living is for the good of our witness. As we live in unity in the church, the world sees and says, There's must, there must be something about Jesus. And as you and I live godly in the face of injustice, from outsiders. They're gonna ask us, why do you have this hope? And maybe they don't ask, but others who see us live through the injustice are gonna say, why do you have that hope as you endure that injustice? Godly living with insiders and outsiders for our good and for the good of our witness. So I wanna ask you today in response, as you consider living with insiders, you're a follower of Jesus. What are some tension points right now 
where you don't wanna live in unity. It's hard to be like-minded. It's hard to be sympathetic. It's hard to be humble with them. What may God be calling for your good and the good of your witness for you to put aside so that you can live in unity? And as it relates to outsiders, is your walk preceding your talk? Especially maybe some of you are facing injustice right now and there's this temptation to extract personal justice. What would it look like for you to endure, to give blessing instead of curse, to speak well of those who speak poorly of you? So that when people see your life, they may say, why do you have the hope that you have? And you can give your reasons. Godly living with insiders and outsiders for our good and for the good of our witness. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.